Today, every answer matters more than ever before. Because whether it's about health, deliveries, or finance, some things just can't wait. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage millions of calls, texts, and chats with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to help your customers find the answers they need faster, no matter the industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant to learn more. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to teach and coach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. This show, this show is based on one heretical idea that it's possible for you, if you work at it, to make more money investing for yourself than you would be by hiding out in bonds or even putting your money in index and mutual funds, which you know we favor. Now, the pundits and commentators say it's too hard, that ordinary people can't invest for themselves and shouldn't even bother trying. But I know from experience, from running a $500 million hedge fund for 14 years and returning 24% after fees, that you can do it as long as you're willing to put in the time and effort. And I know you are succeeding in individual investing when you stop me on Wall Street or the way to squawk on the street and you tell me about your big wins. And I know it because you tweet me at Jim Cramer on Twitter, thanking me for some help along the way. Of course, not everybody's up to it. And that's why I say, listen, I have no problem with index funds. But in order to be a good investor, which I know you can be, you got to understand how the market works behind the scenes. What might be happening to your stocks without you even knowing it? That's why tonight I'm devoting this show to educating you, sharing some of the most important lessons I've learned in more than four decades in the market. Now, before I can start teaching you, before you can start learning about stocks, there's some lessons I need you to unlearn, some myths about the market that need to be demolished. One of the most pernicious myths is the notion that the market is always rational, that the action always makes sense. That simply isn't true. On any given day, the action in the market can be completely nonsensical. Stocks can go up when they should have gone down and vice versa. Entire sectors can move for totally bogus reasons. As I always say, never forget that the market can often be stupid for whole sessions of trading. And I see it happen, frankly, around here at least once a week, maybe even twice. Now, it's our job in the media to help you make sense of what's happening. But sometimes we go too far and start creating explanations where there are none, trying to find the logic and the reason behind moves that are nothing more than tales told by idiots, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Never assume that just because something happened, it has to make sense because the market always is supposed to make sense. That's nonsense. On a day-to-day basis, the market often does some crazy things. And it's important to be able to say, you know what? These moves are just nuts. They don't make any sense at all, because once you start cooking up connections where none really exist, you're in trouble, as you can make yourself believe in just about anything. You see, sometimes stocks or the whole market will go up or down for reasons that have nothing to do with the underlying prospects of actual companies. And I know that's very confusing to you. When it occurs, you want to take advantage of the irrationally irrationality, not by not, not buy into it by chasing stocks or panicking out of them. Remember, no one ever made a dime panicking. For example, whenever we get hit with a huge pullback, the kind of day that just annihilates people, there will be a lot of stocks that went down for reasons disconnected from the fundamentals underneath. 
hence the opportunity. Hedge funds that are in trouble start selling, not because they want to, but because they have to raise money to pay back their unhappy clients who are demanding their money before more is lost. That's why we've been known to play Bob Marley's redemption song to remind us what can happen on these bad days. Hey, by the way, you can pick up a copy of Confessions of a Street Addict if you want to see what happened to me when I had my margin call. You know what? Maybe there's a red-hot deal that's out there. A Facebook, Alibaba, that's so huge that mutual funds have to sell stocks to raise cash. You don't see that. they got to raise the cash to buy those shares, but that's not something that's top of mind for you. It is because I was a professional trader. We've seen this several times, and it makes no sense to those who don't understand the mechanics of money management. Mutual funds just don't keep the cash on hand to make these kinds of investments. And they no longer get enough money in over the transom to participate in any meaningful way in a deal without selling the other stocks that they might own so they can have the cash to buy the new ones. Then regular investors who see the selling start to panic. And they either become too afraid to buy or they get blown out and start dumping stocks themselves. All of a sudden, everything is down across the board and people in the press are cooking up reasons to explain why things that don't normally go down together are all down at once. They concoct theories. They get too negative. I don't think, unless you've managed money professionally, you can really understand these kinds of moves. I've seen them many times in my career. And I actually describe what it's like to live through in almost all my books. Now, I was embarrassed, embarrassed mightily in Confessions of a Street Addict and the great sell-off of 1998. And I was reacting to issues that turned out to be much more hedge fund redemption related than to actual events. That's why I mentioned the book, because I need you to understand the emotionalism of the selling. We also saw the impact of hedge funds to exacerbate moves during the huge sell-offs in the 2008-2009 era, and not just in stocks. It can happen in commodities, too. I will never forget how oil ran up to $147 a barrel in 2008, even as demand for petroleum was stable to weaker, which should have caused oil to go lower, not spike to the highest level ever. Only after that insane rally did we find out that oil skyrocketed because a couple of hedge funds have been caught short the commodity. They've been selling oil short, meaning they had bet against it and they had to buy in their shorts or end their positions at outrageously high prices as they faced certain redemptions or even their demise because their investors were pulling the money out. Then after that huge run, oil fell almost in a straight line to $33 a barrel. As hedge funds that bought a huge amount of oil on margin or debt when it was rallying had to capitulate. And sell pretty much at any price to raise cash. It was the, the mirror image of what happened when it was higher. The worst mistake, the most common mistake you can make these days, is to say that because a particular stock or commodity trades at a given level, it therefore deserves to trade there. Often that's just an act of fiction. When I first started trading, uh, we measured a stock by the prospects of the underlying company, what its earnings might be, what the company might be worth to another company. This is 1979 we're talking about. What it might be worth to an acquirer. How much cash does it have? Are its products selling well? Does it make a lot of money off of what it sells? But then the market and its infinite wisdom and all the great beers and all the government, everybody decided to lump stocks together in gigantic baskets in the 1980s. When we developed a, an instrument that traded, say, the S&P 500, and we linked all stocks together in an asset class, and they started to trade together in lockstep sometimes, whether their prospects were good or bad, positive or negative. It's only gotten worse, meaning more commoditized every single year since then. Stocks trade as a unit. Of course, this turning stocks into one big commodity, homogenizing them like they're corn or wheat, wasn't limited to just this country. One by one, our country's stock markets were commoditized and other countries were commoditized. And now they're traded with contracts or futures or ETFs. Something happened, though, along the way that changed things drastically. 
money managers, hedge fund managers, were able to pool vast amounts of money together. Good money raisers, these guys. Amounts of money so large that they dwarfed individual stocks. Amounts of money so vast that if they tried to buy individual stocks, they would buy all the shares of many of them. They had that much cash. They ran so much money. So the hedge funds gravitated instead of individual stocks to the S&P 500 futures markets, which are much bigger and have more liquidity than any single stock or group of stocks. And they developed a group think. The hedge fund managers started to trade in sync with each other based on all the same tells. They had the computers. They all spit out the same exact programs, the algorithms. The height of the group think occurred in 2008 when so many hedge funds bought the exact kinds of stocks and futures and sold the exact same commodities. And they did it with borrowed money. When many of these funds were whipsawed by events that they didn't see coming, they had to sell, sell, sell. They had to sell everything because they were positioned wrong. Their very survival was at stake. At the time, I called it hedge funds going wild. And I told you it was going to create a fabulous artificial buying opportunity. Because while many stocks deserved to go down, not everything deserved to go down. A lot of the companies were doing fabulous. They didn't go down. They didn't deserve to go down at all. Now, this kind of thing continues to happen to this day because so many hedge funds still buy and sell stocks the same ways, like their commodities, not, not pieces of paper that actually represent shares of vastly different companies with different prospects. We saw it most recently with the Internet and cloud stocks, the biotech spring of 2014, when these groups were hit with huge amounts of new stock and insider selling secondaries. So the good went down with the bad. So the next time you see everything go down at once with the market seeming to move in lockstep or certain sectors just collapse, even as many of the companies and sectors are doing well, before you try to cook up excuses for why the moves make sense, ask yourself if we might simply be seeing the results of hedge funds going wild. The bottom line, the market doesn't always make sense, especially on a daily basis. When everything in the market or a given sector goes down, instead of dreaming up reasons why, based on the fundamentals of the underlying business, think about whether the move was caused by the fundamentals of the Wall Street money management business and out-of-control hedge funds, meaning big redemptions. Then take heart and start recognizing that their irrationality could be your opportunity for big profits. Andrew in Florida. Andrew. Hey, Jim, real quick. I just want to mention another big fan of yours, my mom, who deserves a big hallelujah booyah for finally being cancer-free. Yes! Now that is great news. Thanks, Jim. My question is about your rule um, about investors putting their first 10K into index funds. Right. Uh, As a young investor with a higher risk tolerance, would you advise against me putting my first bits of money into a few safe stocks like that aren't made for trading, but rather for long-term investing? I still know. I'm, I'm still going index fund. I'm not going to break that rule. It's what I did. And a lot of people think me as a, a, someone who just is listening to individual stocks, do or die. I, I want that 10000 saved first. Uh, and, then you can take, and then you can take those shots, so to speak. But no, we're index fund people here. Long-term index funds and then mad money for individual stocks. Irwin in New York. Irwin. Hey, Jim, it's Erwin in Brooklyn. I have a question for you. I've been investing for about 35, been playing in the stock market for about 35 years. I haven't made any money until I started listening to you a few years oh, ago. Thank, thank my, you. My question for you is, um, I have a, an account with, let's say, $100,000 in it, and I have five uh, issues in okay. that portfolio. Is there a proper way to balance the portfolio? Because it, it turns out now that I have almost half the money in one issue. What is the proper way to balance or allocate well, you know, funds? I, I, this is a great question. And first of all, let's remember it's a high-quality problem. 
meaning that you, what's happened is you probably made a lot of money in one stock. You have to trim. I used to take the rule that said when it was up a quarter, when it was up 25%, take some off. I've now kind of changed that to thinking when it's up 50%, take a little off, and up 100%, take a little off. Always with the idea that ultimately you're going to be playing with the house's money. But ultimately means it can take many years to get there. I say continue to let it run and just trim as you get 50 and then 100%, but trim only. No one ever got hurt taking a profit. John and Ido, John. Jim, greetings from the Air Mountain West, and many thanks for your investment guidance. It has literally paid off well for my family. Thank you very much for saying it. Love it. What's up? A while ago, you walked us through how you viewed the peg ratio as a fundamental metric that you actively use in investment decisions. Yes. Your thesis spoke mostly to the buy side of the model, and you stated that you rarely bought a stock that carried a peg ratio of greater than 2.0. Right. You also use the peg ratio as a decision metric on the sell side, and if so, can you walk me through how you use it? All I'm trying to do is find situations that seem overvalued or uh, in relationship to where the S&P is selling in terms of their growth rate. But remember, if there's two kinds of stocks uh, that get overvalued. They're the kinds that get overvalued because it turns out that their earnings in the out years are going to be tremendous. I'm fine with those. And then there's the ones that are overvalued because they're fads. And those are the ones that the peg ratio says sell, sell, sell. And that's the one I don't doubt. Don't listen to the naysayers. I think if you work really hard and do research, you can make money in the market. But as I have said in this segment and many others, if you don't have time or inclination, I'm fine giving it to professionals. But I bet you we can do it together. Coming up on Mad Money, the type of stocks you should avoid at all costs in a sell-off. You won't want to miss this. Then it's not all bad news. I'll let you in on the companies that could be worth buying when things turn south. And send your tweets to me at Jim Kramer. I'm about to answer them on the show. Mad Money will be right back. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When there are huge losses in the market, you'll have opportunities to buy good companies with stocks that have become bad because the market turned down. You're going to catch me saying things like, buy broken stocks, not broken companies, which is the kind of saying that doesn't do you a lot of good on its own unless we put it into a broader market context. In a really serious correction, almost everything will indeed go down. Certainly a lot of stocks that don't deserve to, to will, will decline right alongside with those that deserve to be lower. So I think the big question is, how do you tell the difference between a broken company that's not bouncing back and a broken stock that could be a golden opportunity? Tonight, I propose to give you a new way to look at stocks during a big sell-off to help lead you away from broken companies and toward the broken stocks that I want you to own. What's a broken company? All right, let's approach it like this. Corrections have causes, right? In 2007, for example, we had multiple sell-offs related to a weak real estate market, lots of bad subprime and regular loans, and the collapse of companies that issued mortgages, and then the shellacking taken by everything that, that owned those mortgages, specifically bonds backed by the mortgages. 
You mixed all those ingredients together, and what you got was a credit crisis. And along with that came your big sell-offs. In the wild summer of 2011, we had a combination of debt ceiling concerns in the U.S. topped off with an S&P credit rating downgrade and liquidity concerns in Europe, which led to a steep sell-off and increased volatility. Well, that was a nasty one. Same with the endless declines related to the battles between Democrats and Republicans in 2012 and 2013, including the government shutdown and that nasty sequester. And, of course, if you go back in time, we had the meltdown in NASDAQ in, two, in the year 2000, where many stocks just kind of folded up and disappeared. In each of these sell-offs, we had sectors with companies that were immune to the actual cause of the sell-off, like the drugs and foods that rallied strongly after the Nasdaq fell apart in March of 2000. And what an opportunity that was, unless you were mesmerized by the dot bombs of the era. When you find yourself in the midst of a sell-off, look at the companies that caused it. They're probably broken. In 2007, for example, that meant everything touching housing, mortgages, or really any kind of lending. If you're looking at a company that's part of the reason for a correction, you're looking at a broken company. Those companies are directly in the blast zone, and they might be certain to be obliterated. Then there's another group of companies that's not as bad as the first group, but it's still pretty radioactive. These are companies that might not be directly related to the cause of the sell-off, but whatever caused the sell-off should also cause these companies to make a lot less money going forward. Their earnings will be hurt. While banks were in the blast zone back in 2008-2009, almost all the financials became victims because they had invested in bonds that defaulted or came near doing so. They couldn't be owned through the crisis. A company does not break just because its stock goes lower, though. In 2007, a great example would be many of the great infrastructure stocks that would get marked down with everything else in a sell-off, or the oil companies, our agriculture. None of these businesses was going to be directly affected by the credit crisis that caused the correction. That meant the businesses weren't necessarily broken. We saw this again in the summer of 2011, presenting many buying opportunities in companies that had very little to do with the worries over the potential default of the U.S. government, or in 2012 with domestic companies brought down by European turmoil. How can a Mexican restaurant chain like Chipotle get hit off of Italian bonds? Well, it happened. How about all those companies that did no business with the government but got banged down by the government shutdown and sequester? How about the fact that the defense stocks didn't go down because, well, you know what? Frankly, their budgets were pretty good. Now, there was often wasn't a connection to the causes of the sell-off, and yet these stocks get hit. So we need to think about this. And what we did, I came up with something I think will really help you, and I call it the Bristol-Myers Syndrome. As in, what does that sell-off caused by a Cyprus bank failure or a mess in Ukraine? or a federal shutdown, or an endless Greek crisis have to do with the price-to-earnings ratio of Bristol-Myers. Most likely nothing, which is why it's probably time to buy that quality blue-chip drug company. Go check the chart. It's worked every time since, like, 1983. Put it another way. You don't want to buy the stocks that are leading the decline when you're looking for opportunity to sell off. You want to look for stocks in areas that are independent of what's ailing the market. Even if you think you're approaching a bottom and the worst performers are about to become the best performers as the market reverses itself, that's rarely a safe bet. It's not one I want you to do. Once a company breaks, it's difficult for itself to mend. And that's only more true for sectors which control half of a stock's movement. Here's the bottom line. In a sell-off, there will be stocks that have clear reasons for going lower and ones that just get sold along with everything else. The first are broken companies. Avoid them, please, at all costs. The second group are just made up of broken stocks, and that's exactly where you want to be. Still all mad money ahead. The opportunities created during a market-wide sell-off. How to zero in on the stocks worth buying. Then the common practice in corporate America that could be a cause for concern. 
if you're looking to invest and why you should be worried watching some stocks rally. Yeah, some bad stocks. I'll give you a heads up. Man, money, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the special edition of Bad Money, where I teach you how to navigate so-called market corrections, the brutal declines in stocks that would ordinarily leave us, even the best of us, in tears, if not heading straight for the dirty linoleum floor with only a brief layover at the liquor store to pick up some cheap scotch to wash our troubles away. Now, that's one way of handling a big market downturn, but it's not the way we do it on Mad Money, and especially not for underage. We've been over the big picture stuff, how sell-offs are just part of the process and have to be anticipated, even relied on by every good investor. You know that you have to circle the wagons around what you really like and leave the stocks you're not enthusiastic about in the dust. And I've talked about telling you the difference between damaged stocks and damaged goods when hunting for bargains during a sell-off, which is exactly what you need to be doing. You need to go hunting. A correction is just a mega sale on stocks. No different than what you might find on all kinds of things at your Sam's Club or at Costco any day of the week. But now I want to get a little more specific with the methods to my madness. Tell you about a couple of types of stocks, types, that I specifically like to hunt on for days, days that are really down. And the more brutal the sell-off, frankly, the more attractive these stocks tend to look to me. First, I like to find stocks that have pulled back from their highs during the sell-off. The new high list is always a great place to go hunting if you're looking for good investments. You generally don't end up on the new high list for no reason. But stocks that are hitting new highs also tend to be expensive, or at least they're thought of as expensive. You might love the company and think the stock's a great buy, but just not on the 52-week high list. And this is what big declines were made for. You look for stocks that get knocked off that new high list, that maybe get pushed a couple of percentage points down, maybe even 5 to 7% off their 52-week high because of the market-wide correction. And you're likely to find a lot of very good merchandise. Not all of it's going to be worth buying. Some stocks that come off their highs will be going lower for good reasons that have to do intrinsically with the company. Maybe they're damaged goods. But then there are other stocks that could only be dislodged from that list because market conditions got so horrible that everything went down at once. When you find a stock that actually needs a correction to take it down, genuine Wall Street chippers for a huge decline in the averages, you know what? You probably got something wonderful there. Bye, bye, bye! Not all the time. You'll have to use your discretion for each individual stock. But usually the ones that get knocked from their highs by a correction will be the stocks that recover hardest and fastest from the carnage, unless they're part of the reason for the carnage, meaning a damaged company sits under that damaged stock, and that's not a place you want to go anywhere near. That's the first group of stocks I want you to look at while you're out there bargain hunting. You should certainly have at least one stock that's pulled back from its highs on your sell-off shopping list at all times, which is really what I'm trying to teach you to make here. You want a list of stocks that you would buy if the market took a nosedive tomorrow, even if you would ordinarily take a pass on them because they're so darn expensive. That way, when the decline does come, you'll be taking advantage of it rather than just being a hapless victim. There's a second kind of stock to keep your eye on during a gigunda sell-off, and these are stocks that sell with huge dividends. 
dividends have become a whole lot more attractive, obviously, to the share price as it goes lower, right? And yield goes higher, stock goes lower. Just like you should be watching the 52-week high list for stocks you'd buy in a downturn, you should also be keeping your eyes on stocks that you would buy if their dividend yields were higher. A market correction will give you higher yields because it will send the stock lower. Pardon me if you know this already. I'm trying to reach everybody, though including second graders who don't know the difference between stock and bond, and three-year-olds who just really like the animal noises. <laughs> the dividend yield is just the size of the annual dividend, say uh, $1 divided by the share price. Say this is a $20 share stock. $1 dividend divided by $20 share. Well, that's a stock with a 5% yield. As the price goes lower, the yield goes higher. you got to always remember that. Sometimes you have a sell-off that is so severe, you get what I call AHYs. That's accidental high yielders, meaning stocks that didn't ever seem to be dividend plays but have fallen so hard, so fast, that their dividend yield suddenly becomes meaningful. Or even a trampoline for a quick bounce back when times get better. And you know what? They tend to get better. I know dividend investing isn't sexy at all, but believe me, when I tell you that nobody ever woke up unhappy the next morning after bringing home a stock with a big dividend, uh, you got to trust me. But especially when you're looking at a big decline, you want to get more conservative. You want stocks that are practically guaranteed to put money in your your pocket, and that's what a dividend does, although, of course, remember, there's no guarantees that any stock bounces back. Again, don't buy a damaged company just because its dividend has skyrocketed. If it's a damaged company and not just a stock that's been hurt by the sell-off, then you can bet that company might cut its dividend. Boy, we ought to avoid that, which defeats the entire purpose of hunting for stocks with newly attractive dividends. A good rule of thumb when you're trying to tell if a dividend is truly reliable is by looking at the company's earnings or profit. If the expected earnings are at least twice the size of the dividend payment, then I think the dividend should be reasonably secure. It's a good rule of thumb, not perfect. Some companies, like the telco companies, have giant cash flows, but this will do it for you. Bottom line, a sell-off, it's an opportunity to buy, especially stocks that have just pulled off their highs and stocks with nice yields that have grown larger thanks to the decline in the overall market. These are the best places to bargain hunt in a decline of any magnitude. And I'll be right there alongside you trying to spot them. Let's go to Janet Rose in New York. Janet Rose. Yeah. Hi, Kramer. Hi. Um, Long time listener. I wanted to know how interest rates will affect my dividend stocks. Okay. People will immediately sell higher yielding stocks when rates go higher. That just happens every time. Why? Because you know what? Bonds offer more, can offer a more attractive yield with more safety. So you, you swap out the uh, alleged safety of some stocks and go for true safety of bonds. This is the way people think. I personally like growth and I like yield, and therefore I would not be a seller of these stocks. But it's what happens in the marketplace. It always has. It's happened since 79. Get ready and get be ready and be uh, act accordingly and don't be shocked. Jason in New York. Jason. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? All right. How about you? I'm doing great. Listen, I, my question is, I have a lot of friends that do real estate investing for the monthly income. How can I do that same thing with stocks? So basically monthly income with stock market investing. Well, you know what? I, gotta, I, have, to do a, a, uh, I have to do a segment. Like there's, there's some stocks that offer monthly income. There, that The ones that I know I'm actually not that fond of. I've got to find new ones, particularly in the master limited partnership sector. That's where you find a lot of them. But the ones that were doing it, tend, unfortunately, turned out to be some of the more dangerous ones. Let me revise my thinking. 
All right, this market presents gifts to you all the time. When there's a huge sell-off, use it to spot bargains, to get in on stocks that you should be in at prices that you like. Coming up on Mad Money, when it comes to shopping for stocks, do you dare go up against the all-powerful index funds? I'll tell you how you can get your take on the averages and come out on top. Plus, if you're getting ready to get back in the game, sometimes the warning signs aren't so obvious. I've got all the details on when a rally could be a red flag. Plus, you tweeted, now I'm answering. I'll take some of your toughest questions. Mad Money will be right back. Now, there's an entire cottage industry of commentators and pundits devoted to telling you that you will never, ever, ever beat the market, that you cannot win. So it's simply uh, better to put your money in an index fund that mirrors the market than to invest on your own. I get that. Now, look, if you don't have the time or the inclination or if it's just too overwhelming, then the pundits are going to be right. And an index fund works fine for me. And you know I believe your first $10,000 should be saved in an index fund. Nevertheless, I also believe you can beat the averages but only if you know what you're doing using the precepts that we teach every night here. And this is particularly important to keep in mind after a sell-off period. That's why I do man money. Why I spend so much time trying to educate you about how stocks and the stock market works. Again, though, as I always say, I want you to be a better investor or a better client. If you can't get advice, you can do it with an index fund. If you can do the homework, feel free to pick stocks after you put away that 10000 and start investing some mad money. If you want stocks but can't do the work, hire a professional, preferably someone with good word of mouth from your acquaintances. They can do the vetting for you. But I'm devoting tonight's show to some of the most important lessons I've learned in more than three decades of investing and trading. And these are lessons that will help you identify opportunities and avoid some of the worst mistakes and pitfalls of investing, especially when times get tough out there on the battlefield. You know what? Right now, I've kind of got a rule that I want to bring back from getting back to even. That was the book I wrote right after the Great Recession. And I think it's going to help avoid you help you avoid getting burned. And that is don't necessarily put a lot of faith in buybacks. I have a sound great, don't they? But they aren't created equally. And they aren't at all a place to run to in a sell-off, even though you probably think it's a nice trampoline underneath, a safety net. In fact, many buybacks disappear when times get tough and can't really relied upon. As we saw when the oils came crashing down, when oil plunged in 2014, a lot of the oil companies just walked away from their buybacks. I used to believe that large buybacks, where companies repurchase their own shares in the open market in order to take them out of the equation, something that reduces the number of shares outstanding and therefore boosts the earnings per share, were almost always worthwhile. And the bad buybacks were the exception. Buybacks like dividends are a way for companies to reward shareholders with their cash, a return to you of the money. But I like dividends more because of the superior downside protection and the preferred federal taxation status. Buybacks over the years, though, have become increasingly popular. Companies have spent about a trillion dollars buying back stock over the last few years. And that's money that I thought would have been better being paid right to you in a dividend. Unfortunately, these buybacks have, haven't given us the value we thought they would in many cases. And in some cases, they've turned out to be huge wastes of money. So when you see a company with large buyback and a puny dividend, you know what? Let's be a little skeptical. The track record looks better thanks to the huge rally that began in 2009. But in the wake of the 2008 crash, it's still not hard to find companies that squandered their money buying back stock at higher prices, leaving shareholders with nothing to show for the billion spent on buying back stock. But some companies have been a whole lot worse than others. For example, 
Here's a group that I like now, but they spend a lot of money doing the wrong thing, the health maintenance companies. They generate a huge amount of cash, but they've always been stingy with that cash, and they've been electing to buy back stock, even as that would, be, uh, would have been you know, a lot better if they'd just given you the great yield that they could have offered. That's the best combination in the market where you have low interest rates and uncertain growth. We've seen the same thing with some of the tech stocks, which buy back stock at absurd uh, play- prices. And you know what? That did plague Cisco for a while, the big network equipment seller, until it decided to boost its dividend, which I think directly led to the stable, higher run that that stock has had. That was a shrewd maneuver. Intel did exactly the same thing. It was buying endless amounts of shares. It really wasn't doing anything. But then an aggressively instituted dividend policy caused the stock to bottom and began a terrific rise. Now, maybe the worst defender out there is Exxon. Spies buy more stock than just about any company in the world, but has little growth and much less dividend protection than its fellow oil companies. That's why it is my least favorite in the group. I don't tell people to sell the darn thing. It's got a great balance sheet, whatever. But I like higher dividends and buybacks together. So why do executives seem to like buybacks so much more than dividends? A couple of reasons. Since the company's earnings per share is just its net income divided by the total number of shares, a buyback can be a great way to create the perception of growth. But it's just earnings growth. That's been the case with many of the old-line pharmaceuticals and the consumer packaged good companies. The buybacks magnify what others would be actual anemic growth. That's how you can see low single-digit revenue. You know, in other words, not a lot of growth at all for sales and almost no growth and yet low teens earnings growth from many of these stagnant businesses. Yeah, that's right. The sales aren't doing anything, but because of the buyback series per share go up. Other companies just don't see growth opportunities, so they decide it's worth it to just keep buying back their stock instead. Uh, you know what? I, I got an idea. Give it to shareholders and dividends, please. Uh, we want the income. What about the notion that a buyback can help cushion a stock's fall in a bear market by ensuring there's always a buyer ready to step, step in and purchase stock? The evidence says otherwise. Short sellers or just ordinary sellers in a panic can almost always overpower any company's buyback, that even if it's trying to prop up its stock, especially as there are restrictions on how many companies, on how much stock a company can buy on a given day. Again, a dividend does a much better job by creating meaningful yield support especially in a low-yield environment. Dividends also repel short sellers because short sellers have to borrow stock and they pay the dividend themselves. Remember, they borrow the stock first to sell it short, and whoever borrows the stock must pay the dividend to the real holder. You want futility in buybacks? No group was more aggressive, and I say irresponsible, when it came to buybacks than the banks leading up to the crash of 2008. Buybacks didn't do anything, didn't do an ounce of good. Uh, They didn't hold the stocks up when faced against a rapid-fire onslaught of short sellers that hammered down every bank in sight. As soon as the shorts were armed with a newfound power to bang stocks down over and over again without waiting for a lift, the buyback as support game, well, it was over. Gave you little to no downside protection. It's even worse with the banks. They bought back all that stock, and then they had to issue tons more in order to meet the regulators' demands. The power to destroy stocks via shorting was granted by the short sellers by the uh, granted to the short sellers by the Securities and Exchange Commission when it repealed an old Depression-era regulation called the Uptick Rule, which I remember fondly. That had previously forced short sellers to wait for above market prices prices before they could offer stock. You couldn't stop these guys with the biggest buybacks in the world, especially when the fundamentals were deteriorating for some of the largest and the best banks out there. You also see executives try to call bottom in their own stocks by announcing major buybacks, saying, we're putting it to work right here. These attempts at Babe Ruth-style called shots almost always fail. Turn out to be a big waste of your money. As it turns out, the executives trying to call the bottom often turn out to not understand the way the stock market works. They should watch the show. Or maybe they don't don't understand the way their own stock works, at least as well as you would expect, considering they worked the company. They pour fortunes into trying to create the appearance of a bottom while their business is still in decline. 
The rare exception, Apple, led by Tim Cook, which buys back a tremendous amount of stock opportunistically, meaning they're in their own diffs. That's what I really want. They got to buy back with a brain. Yes, that's about the best buyback I have ever seen. And it's accompanied by a terrific dividend to boot. That's the combo I want. Of course, it also has the best products manufactured in the world. That doesn't hurt either. Disney, too, is extremely opportunistic as it bought a ton of stock of its own stock back during the Ebola scare in the fall of 2014 when the stock was getting crushed because people were so worried. Hey, Bob Iger, the CEO, he wasn't worried. He was a buyer. And AutoZone. There's one that's always been a buyer and weakness. Uh, AutoZone is a tremendous buyer of its own stock, and it shrinks the float, and it also has worked, if you take a look at the long-term chart for AZO. The bottom line, buybacks by themselves are no reason to own a stock, and in some circumstances, are actually a reason to sell it. I think you never want to own a stock of a company that's wasting the money it needs to survive on useless buybacks, or even worse, spending money it doesn't even have on an activity as fruitless as repurchasing its stock to call a bottom. And you shouldn't rely on even the largest buyback to help prop up a stock if the situation's dire. The way I see it, these are false signs of health and too often just a darn waste of shareholders' money. Bad Money's back after the break. Now, after a sell-off... In order for stocks to reverse and move higher, they need to have fuel, the fuel necessary for a rally. And what that fuel, what is it? It's cash. Sometimes the fuel comes from retail investors who are taking their money off the sidelines and putting it to work back in the stock market after the decline. I like that. When money is flowing into stocks with the mutual funds buying in endless waves and the hedge funds desperate to own stocks rather than shorting them, then you're in the land of the thousand bull dances. You don't have to worry about where the fuel for rally is going to come from. You don't, even, you don't need me for certain. That's when everybody seems so, so smart. As long as more and more dough is flowing into the stock market, it's easy to find groups of stocks that can go higher. And when that money's flowing into stocks at the same time as the businesses are turning around, you've got to buy the dips each time they occur. I'll talk about it at night. Don't worry. But it can take a long time for, regu- for regular people to become accustomed to putting their money in stocks again after a serious sell-off. It's scary. Now, with no money flowing into the market or even with outflows, you can still have powerful moves in the stocks and sectors that are trying to assert their leadership in the turmoil. But the fuel to make those moves happen can't just come out of thin air. It's money, and it has to come from somewhere. So if people are still reluctant to invest, then the money will simply be pulled out of the least exciting, least interesting groups of stocks as investors swap out of them and swap into the ones with, with power, the sexier names, the ones with more lift. People who own food and drug stocks will happily sell them in order to raise cash. This kind of churning move, it's called a rotation. And we've seen quite a few rotations since the market bottom in 2009. There's just one problem with rotations. Without new money flowing in, the advance often becomes zero sum and ultimately can and probably will run out of fuel. As soon as the selling, say, in the defensive staples comes to an end, the leaders also run out of steam. There's just not enough left on the sidelines to drive them higher if it comes in. And when investors on the sidelines are still reluctant to commit capital, something even worse can happen. You can get a rally in what I call the wrong stocks. That's right. The stocks that signal slowdowns or even recessions, namely the food and drug names that have been used as fuel during the previous advance. These stocks can become the market's new leaders and all the cash that investors pulled out of them can be poured right back in because the big money thinks another downturn must be ahead or the food and drug stocks would still be going lower. No matter that it just might be because these non-durables are getting so cheap, they represent great value. 
a rotation could be at hand. I want you to be ready for it. You never really want to see any of the consumer staples roaring higher in a sustained advance where they're the only ones going higher because it means people think the economy is going to either get worse or simply stay in awful shape for a long time to come. That's why one of the most horrifying things you can see in the stock market is a powerful rally in the so-called wrong stocks. What are the wrong stocks? I want you to think about Altria, Coca-Cola, General Mills. If that's all that's going higher, that's trouble. The bottom line, there's nothing more disconcerting than watching a beverage or a drug stock happily plow its way higher without any understanding of the damage it's leaving in its wake with the rest of the market. Until and unless there are vast sums of money coming in from the sidelines, you need to be more cautious and less aggressive whenever you see the defensive food and drug names do the job as generals and leaders. Watch the sector leadership to help give you a read on macro sentiment in order to time when to expect more of, more of a sustained rally. In the meantime, look for opportunities to buy high-quality names where the stocks and not companies are broken. And beware of management tactics like buybacks that artificially prop up stock prices only to see those stocks go right down from unstoppable high-frequency bombers. Remember, the coast isn't clear until the vast preponderance of stock groups actually goes higher. And that's when you know it's really safe to go back in the water. And after the huge run we have had in the averages, you know what? Maybe it's something worth waiting for. They have money's back every break. Ah, my fingers are hurt from battling all the trolls, my new trash to troll campaign. If only there was an easier way to answer all the nice tweets. Hey, wait a second, I got a TV show. Let's give my poor hands a break. Give you the answers you deserve. Let's start here with at even after I get it, who lets us know? I let my nose run when listening to at Jim Kramer on at Mad Money on CBC because when I sniffle, I miss something. Well, um, you know, may I suggest that you get some Mad Money Kleenex. That way you'll be in sync with what I'm saying. Next, is a, at Willing Blam is wondering... At Jim Kramer, are there any benefits to purchasing silver over gold? Hashtag mad money. Not really. Silver's a much less worthwhile commodity and it can be found where gold's getting harder to find. And, you know, I believe the GLD or actual bullion is a good insurance policy that is not paid off in a long time. But, you know, sometimes it's good when insurance doesn't pay off. Here's one from at Tiffany Dunn at Jim Kramer. You have jump-started my addiction for investing early on in life. Your invaluable knowledge and energy is inspiring. Thank you. I want you to tweet that every single day for the rest of your life because it makes up for a lot of the trashy trolls that I have to worry about. Thank you for your nice comments. Now, here's an idea from at its M1 Chai one. Why not, right? At Jim Cramer, you should have a short video made on Jim Cramer Reads Angry Tweets against you. That'd be interesting and funny to watch, and we're going to do that. Actually, we're going we're gonna to do that regularly. I think it's, you know... There's a guy who does it on TV. It's very funny. It looks like at Cube One Us has a dilemma. What to do? What to do? Have enough stocks in the portfolio but too much cash? Can add the positions without violating basis help? You know what? At ActionAlertsPlus.com, uh, which is my charitable trust, I say, you know what? Then you have to wait. I know it's painful, but you've got to wait. Don't violate basis. Do you know that in 2014 I violated basis and it was not a good year? And I, I principally... 
attribute that to violating basis, or at least to not letting stocks come down enough to make the next purchase meaningful. Remember, I like to space out the buys. Here's an idea from at EM Flavin at Jim Kramer. Maybe you could develop tech to charge your Apple Watch from your personal energy level. Hashtag Energizer Bunny. I want one of those self-charging tables. I want one of those the cordless tables from, um, you know, from integrated device, from IDTI. That's what I really need. All right, here's at DMJ43 who says, at Jim Kramer, my financial advisor always warned me about watching the market every day. It's more frustrating than ever. Okay. I like to check in on the market if I were uh, on vacation, whatever, you check in. Don't be obsessive about it uh, because that is not what you're trying to do. You're trying to buy good companies with stocks that are good at prices you like. Okay, And just to watch it all the time doesn't make that happen. Much better to do homework and try to find the next idea. Next is at Dress Windler, who's asking me for information on how to do homework better. I just use Google, but I think there are many better techniques. Okay, hashtag mad, uh, mad tweets. I have written whole books about how to do homework. The best one is still real money. But then I would tell you that my most recent one, which is Get Rich Carefully, has a whole segment, whole chapter, actually it's the longest chapter, about how to analyze stocks. I think that can really help. And of course, stick with Kramer. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you next time. 1980s New York. Five titans redefined the American dream. Helmsley, Bosky, Gotti, Trump, Giuliani. Greed was good, and they wanted it all. Empires of New York, narrated by Paul Giamatti. Series premiere November 29th at 8 Eastern, only on CNBC-TV.